world. Borealis. Paradigm expansion. Greetings from the north. And welcome to another forum dedicated to the mystery of Hitler's fate. Our guest tonight is Harry Cooper, president of Shark Hunters and expert on aspects of World War II history. He has a background in the U.S. Air Force, which he joined after college. Later, he moved on to become a businessman and worked for many years as a regional vice president of a large corporation. He's also been a professional race car driver for many years, a television newscaster and a technical editor for an automotive magazine. Later in life, he became a district publications officer and a flotilla commander in the U.S. Coast Guard. He is also an honorary submarine officer in the Russian Navy and serves on the Veterans Advisory Board of the 5th Congressional District. At some point, he sold everything he had, left his work, and became a fast liver for many years, sailing around with his yacht. Due to experiences in this period, he became interested in U-boat history, which eventually, in 1983, led to him founding Shark Hunters International, a global interest club for U-boats with many members who are World War II veterans from both Axis and Allied countries. For more details about his bio, go to our website where you'll also find links to his site as well as his complete bibliography. What makes Cooper's research stand out is that he's had access to a large number of German veterans, including Nazi and SS members, with exclusive access to inside information that otherwise would have been lost on a general researcher. Albeit not a formal academic, his research is primary and his approach scholarly, with meticulous documentation and clear distinction between verified facts and expert guess speculations. Cooper has authored several books on different topics, including a trilogy on Hitler and other exiles from the Third Reich. Our conversation with Harry is based upon these three books. Welcome to the forum, Harry. Thank you for having me on. I'm happy to have you on because you are our first listener suggested guest. We got the suggestion that if we're going to take on Hitler, why don't we invite the author who actually has done primary research in the field? (laughs) And that piqued our interest. (laughs) So we looked into you, and uh, I found that there was a couple of books. It was a little chaotic on Amazon, but there was at least a couple of books that piqued my interest. And today we're going to talk about them. And I was thinking, Harry, maybe we could start with you explaining us very briefly what the mainstream myth about Hitler's faith is. Okay, You're asking an Irishman to speak briefly, huh? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Well, the mainstream thought, which we were taught from school on up, was that Hitler and Eva Brown committed suicide in the Fuhrer bunker on the 30th of April, 1945. And that is absolutely not true. Mm. 
And when did you start to understand that this maybe wasn't so? It came in uh, kind of slowly. Our organization, Shark Hunters, which is sharkhunters.com, is the leading source of information on the German U-boat activities during the war. And one of our members, way back in the middle 1980s, uh, a Spaniard by the name of Don Angel Alcazar de Velasco, sent us a very strange letter, 114 pages long, single space typewritten, mm. uh, telling all about his time working for the Third Reich as a spy, as an agent. The last three months of the war, he was working in the Fuhrer bunker, and one of his duties was to make a report directly to Adolf Hitler about some information coming in. So he he knew the Fuhrer. Wow. And uh, then he saw with his own eyes Hitler and Eva Braun being forcibly drugged under orders of Martin Bormann and removed from the Fuhrer bunker way before the alleged suicide. Bormann was by that time Bormann was the power behind mm. the Reich. He was he was in the shadows all the time. They called him the Gray Eminence. Mm. He was the power in the Reich at that time. Hitler was a broken man, <clears throat> suffering from a lot of illnesses and the imminent collapse of his uh, empire. But Bormann wanted to keep the Reich alive, which he was able to do, but that's another story. Mm. They needed a figurehead, they felt, at that time. So Hitler was drugged and removed. And we're not absolutely certain the date he was removed, but the last general order that was signed by Hitler was on 23rd of April, uh, a whole week before the alleged suicide. After that, Martin Bormann signed all the general orders. So the, the, the story of the eyewitnesses, um, the burning of the bodies and all that, it, it is all contrived, mm. which we lay out in our two books, Hitler and Argentina, also Hitler and the Secret Alliance. Three SS officers were interrogated and they said they witnessed the death. Mm. All three had the uh, SS rank of major. I forget what it is, Hauptstonefuhrer, I think it is, but I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. One was Linga, who was Hitler's valet. One was Kempke, who was his driver. And the other one was Gunsche, who was his adjutant. And they were all interviewed separately, of course. And two of them said they actually never saw the suicide, but they heard a shot. The third one said he never saw the suicide, but he smelled the burnt gunpowder. Each one said that they ran into Hitler's personal quarters and they gave the times that they ran in and it was off by several hours. Hang on, hang on. Are these three people the main witnesses of uh, Trevor Ropens? You know, the the guy who's created a suicide myth on behalf of the English who was interviewing. Yeah, I know who. I know who Trevor Roper was, and I know he was discredited for just about everything. He's the one who validated the so-called Hitler diaries. Yeah, before Irving uh, debunked them. But I think people need to understand who 
who these myths come from. So these three Germans you're talking about, they were interviewed by, by the British, by Trevor Roper. Well, yeah, after uh, after they got done with the Soviets, I think. But, yeah, uh, okay. And so their stories were, were way different about the, the time. Nobody saw it. And also, two of them said that Hitler was slumped over on one end of the sofa, mm. and Eva Braun was slumped over on the other end of the sofa, and her dress was wet because Hitler apparently had knocked over a flower vase and splashed the water on her. The third guy said that Eva Brown was laying on the sofa and Hitler was sitting in a chair on the other side of the room. Mm. Now, maybe you can make a mistake about whether he had three buttons or four buttons on his coat, but was he sitting on the sofa or was he sitting on the chair on the other side of the room? That That's not an easy mistake to make. Right. Was Eva Brown sitting up on the sofa or was she laying down on the sofa? Mm. So we think, um, no proof on this part at all, but we think that was the sole way the SS was giving clues that the story of the suicide was not true. Mm. Mm. So that's what got me started in it. And as I say, in the middle 1980s, we thought he was nuts. Um, and and we, we reported that we were looking into this. And of course, people thought we were nuts. Mm. And uh, in 1988... One of our members came to visit. We were living in Tampa at the time. And uh, this man was a retired captain, U.S. Navy, from Naval Intelligence. And then later he worked for NSA, which we know means no such agency. <laughs> I've heard that one before. I'm <laughs> sure <laughs> a lot of people have. Uh, yeah. And he was sitting on our sofa. We were talking, and I asked him if he had ever heard of a of a... German agent by the name of Don Angel Alcazar de Velasco, and he kind of chuckled, and he said, yeah, and I said, why are you chuckling? He said, well, we all knew he was a spy. He was just such a bad spy, everybody knew he was a spy. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, okay, and the guy's crazy too, apparently. I said, because he sent me this big, long letter claiming that Hitler escaped and lived in Argentina, and that he, Don Angel, visited with Hitler in 1952. And I said, everybody knows Hitler committed suicide in the bunker. And just as calmly as if he was asking for another cup of coffee, Bob Thu said, no, he didn't. I said, what do you mean, no, he didn't? I said, everybody knows he blew his brains out. And Bob said, nope, he got away. He said, we all knew he got away. And I said, who's we? He said, the intelligence community, he said, every time we'd grab another high-ranking Nazi, he said, we would start grilling him on where is Hitler. And now, of course, the FBI files have been declassified, which, oh, everybody's so excited that the FBI files have been declassified. It was one of my people who got the darn things declassified about six years ago, I guess, this one, we have what we call SIG agents, S-E-I-G, which stands for Shark Hunters. Eagle Hunters Intelligence Group. This wow. this person almost lived in the National Archives in, in Washington, D.C. for three weeks straight. Mm. He was finding dusty old boxes that even the archivists didn't know they had. He was finding all these FBI files, thousands of them. He, mm. got, them, he got them declassified, sent copies to us. We released some of them 
on the internet now of course there, I think there's about 700 on the internet so and they all say the same thing they all say Adolf Hitler did not die in the bunker he escaped to Argentina some of these files even say where he was at a ranch in Argentina which he was prior to moving into his estate because he got down there about August or September of 1945. That's the dead of winter down mm. there. It's mm. a lot like Norway is in January or February. Oh, my God. Uh, mm. Yeah, I understand. It, it's pretty nasty. So uh, mm. we went to this ranch in 2008 with this fellow, Nahuel Coca, that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, hang on. So at this point, he, yes, he brought you there, but you were still adopting Thomas at this point. Yeah. But you went to check. That's true. And uh, mm-hmm. so I was still adopting Thomas, and I contacted another one of our members, uh, a fellow named Peter Hansen in Germany. On paper, he was a lieutenant, Leutnant Zersee, in the U-boats, but it turned out every time... The boat he was attached to was going to go out for combat. He got transferred to another U-boat that was still in the shop for repairs. And in reality, he was a high-level Abwehr agent, a German spy. And uh, he also confirmed Don Angel was exactly who he said he was. So we confirmed from the American side and from the German side that Don Angel was indeed who he said he was. Then we were just tracking down all the loose ends, mm. and uh, we found because because we are the world experts on the U-boats, we found about oh 15 years ago or so we found that the German U-boats were and and also big sailing vessels, 90-ton yawl-rigged sailing vessels were going from the Norwegian ports down to this one little area of Argentina uh, called the Caleta de los Loros in the Parrot Bay or Parrot Cove which is in the northwest corner of uh, Golfo San Matias St. Matthew's Gulf and these boats and sailing vessels were going in and out of there all during the war bringing in agents bringing in equipment radio equipment etc money to pay people And they were coming and going, and nobody was bothering them, because as we found out later, Juan Perón was very pro-German. So we further found there is an island about a thousand kilometers out from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, called Trindade, not to be confused with Trinidad. Mm -hmm. And this island is nothing but a rock about two and a half miles long by a mile and a half wide by uh, and it goes up to 3,000 feet so there's very little flat stuff there and incidentally all these photos are available on our website sharkhunters.com and click on previous tours all the photos are there the uh, island is owned by Brazil and they have two or three dozen sailors there and their whole job is to raise the flag in the morning and bring it down in the evening to show that they own 200 miles of fishing that's their eez their economic exclusion zone Mm. but in 1939 march of 1939 
Brazil pulled all their sailors off the island. And one week later, a German scientific flotilla appeared. Well, they obviously didn't come from Germany to that island in one week. So it had to have been prearranged. The Germans built two 80-meter-tall radio masts. We have photos of them on the website. Uh, and they, they made other improvements to the area. Then in 1941, the Germans moved out. The Brazilian Navy moved back. Then in July of 1945, two months after the German surrender, the Brazilians again moved out and a German contingency came back, and uh, one of the German sailors was killed in an accident. We saw the marker for his grave. All it was was somebody had painted 7-17 on a rock, uh, which was when he was killed. And the Germans remained there for two more years, providing uh, fresh water and food to the submarines and the ships and the, the tramp steamers and everything going down to South America. There's fresh water all over this island. There's brooks and streams and creeks and pools, fresh water everywhere. And at that time, they heard, had herds of uh, pigs and goats and also wild turtles on the, on the island. So when a ship needed replenishment, bang, they'd whack a bunch of pigs and goats and there was your food. I was so, on so, that. So, yeah. Excuse me, so this is, in a way, a little oasis for U-boats, then? For, for U-boats, for tramp steamers, for any, any German units going south. Mm, I see. And uh, I was on that island uh, two years, three years ago, something like that. Those photos are on the website, too. You can only go to this island with the approval and the assistance of the Brazilian Navy. They were just super. They gave me permissions for everything, mm. put me up in the uh, Navy hotel, drove me around in a staff car, and then took me out to this island on one of their ships and put me up in uh, <laughs> the VIP quarters out there. Uh, VIP quarters out on an island like this is uh, not quite like the Waldorf Astoria. <laughs> <laughs> no. But, uh, the, the Brazilian Navy were just absolutely wonderful. And uh, so I walked, oh boy, you, you, that island, you walk, everything is up or down a hill. Oh, and I, see. I, I was at the remains of the radio station, which there are photos on the website, there are photos in the book. Mm-hmm. And they had this one younger guy, of course, everybody's younger than me, but they had this one young guy <laughs> walking around with me, he's about 30 years old. And finally, I asked him, why was he following me? Did he think I was going to steal the island? And no, turned out he was the Navy doctor. And they figured <laughs> if I had a heart attack or a stroke, he'd be there to try to bring me back to life. So he finally got tired of trying to follow me. He couldn't keep up the pace. Yeah, I, I guess you, you shouldn't underestimate the health of a former race car. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I have to say, first of all, that this just goes to show that you actually have been doing primary research. You actually traveling, you're taking photos, you're talking with people, you're more or less behaving like a detective, an investigator in this field. Absolutely, that's the only way to do it, Al. Boots on the ground. Yeah. Any 
fool can sit in a library and read the books that somebody else has written from books that somebody else has written. They can go onto their computer and do all sorts of stuff and think that they're getting something accomplished. Mm -hmm. But unless you go there and see the place, the first time we went down to the uh, the little village where, where Hitler had lived from 1945 until at least 1955, it's called San Carlos de Bariloche, mm. 700 miles southwest of Buenos Aires. Beautiful, still, beautiful town, huh? Oh, yeah. Mm. Uh, well, Buenos Aires is called the Paris of the South. Yeah. And uh, right now they're having a little problem because they're financial situation is not too good and when I was there last year a lot of unrest but it's a beautiful city and this place uh, San Carlos de Bariloche 700 miles southwest of Buenos Aires it's still pretty remote hmm. but in 1945 it could have been on the other side of the moon it was that hard to get to <laughs> so we went there in 2008 and uh with these two Argentine guys I was telling you about, Abel Basti and now Val Coca. Yeah, and these confronted who came to you and told you about this Hitler survival thing back in the 80s, right? Well, they, they confirmed some of the facts, yeah. Yeah, and I also have to say that, uh, you know, all in the 80s, if you, if you believe that Hitler lived, you probably also, in people's eyes, you were probably one of those who had seen Elvis and thought that he had lived. Because back in the 80s, <laughs> uh, most people, yeah, right, because then we didn't know what we know now yeah. uh, about, let's say, the how the Soviets uh, bluffed about the skull, etc. So, so you were very early out with this realization but but continue it's good that you go back because we need to take this chronologically right. so you you're going there with these two members continue right and uh, the plane landed and when you get out you could have thought you were in bavaria yeah the town the architecture all looks like bavarian german you're at the foothills of the andes you might as well think you're in the alps yeah. and we went to dinner that night, a very nice restaurant that uh, looked like anything you would find in Bavaria. Mm -hmm. And uh, the owner met us at the door. He was about six foot two tall, uh, had bl uh, blue eyes and what was left of his hair had been blonde. And uh, he didn't speak English. I don't speak Spanish. And he was explaining the specials on the menu to my friends in Spanish. They were explaining to me in English. And it was not working very well. So <clears throat> just on a hunch, I said, Bitte mein Herr, ich möchte eine Speisekarte mit Englisch schreiben. Ah, Sie sprechen Deutsch. So that, you know, that means, uh, please, sir, I'd like an English menu. And bingo, just that fast, he comes back. Oh, mein Freund, haben Sie nicht? My friend, we don't have it. So you can get along there with German. Yes. Wow. And so we talked for about two minutes in German. I don't know if he realized he made the switch. <laughs> and then I then I asked him, I said, you speak so good Deutsch, warum? You speak good German, why? Mm. Oh, uh, er, mm, uh, uh. <laughs> and he kind of, kind of strange, and he said, uh, uh, ich bin Schweizer. I'm Swiss. Swiss. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sure. So anyhow, he was playing a Schiffer Clavier, which, you know, is like an accordion, only with buttons instead of keys. And he had a, an Argentine friend playing a guitar, and they were singing gaucho songs and 
So I went over to him and asked if he could play the Matrosen lead, the sailor song, which the U-boaters always sang when they were heading out on patrol. No, no, doesn't know that one. Okay, fine. So we're back eating some really outstanding Argentine beef, wonderful beef down there. And uh, suddenly, <laughs> suddenly we hear, and he went through the whole Matrosen lead. Then we get night. He went through the whole Panzer lead, some of the armor divisions. Yeah. And he got finished, and I smiled. I gave him a thumbs up. He stood up, clicked his heels together, and put his right arm straight out in the air. And you could do that down there, right? Nobody would look twice. Exactly, exactly. Mm. Uh, and it's not only legal down there, it's the way some people still greet each other down there even right, today. Right. That that kind of gesture will put you in prison in, in Europe or at least fine you heavy money and thrown out forever. But uh, another fellow we met there was the son of Erich Priebke, who was an SS captain who lived in that town. And he helped found the German school. He was the founder of the uh, German uh, cultural center. And he also working with some of the old guys down there to help support them, get money from Europe. And in 1995, Priebke was sent back to Italy to stand trial. And he was put under house arrest for the rest of his life. But his son was there. And I had dinner with his son, and his son gave us a lot of information about that town, too. Mm. We have also uncovered photographs of parties, celebrations in that town and many other little towns in South America on the 20th of April, which is Hitler's birthday. And they'd have a big swastika flag and they would have a picture of Hitler even well into the 1990s and up to maybe 2000. So So they're, they're still there. Yeah, uh, I, I guess there's not too many who still lives, but... Um, uh, but their sons are living, yeah. their sons, their grandsons. Yeah. <laughs> this is so interesting. I want us to delve deeply in part two into, should we say, Hitler's life in Argentina. I want to go a little back to the escape. <laughs> because we need to, people need to realize that, because right now, if people don't know about the facts, they could think, okay... This chap here, he's good telling stories. It's all well and interesting, <laughs> but we need we need some hard facts here. So sure. <clears throat> we go back to what you said. The first interesting thing that I noted was that you said that at some point, uh, Bormann started to sign all the orders. I mean, if that's not an indication, I don't know what is. Because uh, if we're going to be like detectives here, we must see what's the latest evidence we have for Hitler being in Germany and indeed there are people who have suggested that if Hitler was to flee he could actually have fled long before the final uh, uh, you know uh, stand in Berlin right. but uh, but you were saying that at least four weeks before the uh, invasion of the bunker well no we 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 don't know the exact date he left but he was still in the bunker planning to, uh, I guess he was planning to die in there, but Borman needed to keep him alive to keep you know, a figurehead. Mm. Later on, Borman's plan had changed apparently because Hitler was just pushed into a quiet uh, existence way out in, in Bariloche while Borman ran all the businesses down in Argentina. But don't you think that, don't you think that was Borman's plan all along? 
I've been always having this uh, view that Bormann needed Hitler because Hitler was the charismatic figurehead, right. whereas Bormann was, uh, as you said yourself, he's a spider in the shadow, and many of his colleagues and others didn't even like him. So it, yeah. I think it would be very risky for Bormann to, well, he could have just ditched Hitler, but how could he... Uh, you know, grow the Fourth Reich without the symbol that was Hitler. So I think uh, because we know that it's official, uh, and you probably know this better than me, that there was plans, escape plans, if it went sour already from 43. So Bormann, is so, he was so smart and calculating, so he must have thought about the whole thing, his relationship to Hitler, how to do this, which is, this is just my personal uh, view, though. But it, I think it fits the profile of Bormann's psychology, so to speak. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, th I think you're right. In the first place, he was not well-liked. Uh, they, they referred to him as the pig. Uh, <laughs> not, not his face, of course. Uh, yeah. I think he was very, very clever, very power-hungry. Mm. Uh, he and Goering... Uh, were enemies. He really hated Goering. Goering wasn't quite so involved. But let me step back a little bit to explain how Barry Lochi got involved here. Sure. Uh, the Battle of the Falkland Islands, and we're not talking 1980, we're talking 1915, mm. when the German cruiser squadron under Admiral Graf von Spee encountered the Royal Navy cruiser squadron, and they had a battle. The uh, German cruiser squadron was wiped out except for the cruiser Dresden, which was a light cruiser, and had one knot speed faster than the British ships and got away. They went through the Straits of Magellan. Hang on, just because everybody don't know history here. Okay. In 1915, there was a battle, another battle for the Falkland Islands, the first one, and this was between the British and the Germans? Yes. So the Germans were helping the Argentines then? That is correct. Okay. So, on board this cruiser was a young Oberleutnant Zersee by the name of Wilhelm Canaris, mm. who later became Admiral Canaris, Canaris head of the Abwehr. Mm. When they got to Chile, the German crew was interned. The cruiser was just scrapped because it was in terrible conditions. The engines were shot, and, and it just was, it was finished. So, the, the, the crew was interned, but uh, Canaris either bribed his way out or escaped or something, and he went over the Andes on horseback in the wintertime, which is no small feat. <laughs> and he found Verilochi, which had been a small German community at that point in time. Mm. Then fast forward to 1943 or so, <clears throat> there was a sailing vessel, a 90-ton sailing vessel codenamed... Uh, Oh, gee, I can't remember the code name, but it was also called Barbara. Mm -hmm. And we see a picture of the commander with a knight's cross. We wonder, who the heck is this guy? Mm -hmm. He's not some combat sailor. And he doesn't appear easily found in any of the records. So we dug and dug and dug and found that he got this knight's cross because he was able to get in and out of this Caleta de los Loros with his sailboat. And in 1940, late 43 or early 44, he was having a conversation with uh, Borman and Arthur Axman, and they asked him if he could bring people in and out. 
And he said, of course, I've been doing it with the spies. And they said, okay. So he got his knights cross. And then Admiral Dernitz, Gross Admiral Carl Dernitz, was heard to say, we have found a Shangri-La for the Fuhrer. Yeah, yeah, that's a famous statement. Yeah, and we are absolutely convinced he meant Barry Lochi. Mm, mm, mm. Now, the place where Hitler lived, the, the estate, was built in the closing moments of the war, paid for by Mercedes-Benz of Argentina. Mm. It was supposed to be uh, a resort, a retreat for the executives to go and go fishing or go skiing or someplace they could take their secretaries where the wife couldn't find them. <laughs> but they didn't, they didn't move in. Nobody moved in until Hitler and Eva Brown moved in. Hmm. And after Hitler and Eva Brown moved out in 1955 or 60, we're not sure which, there's no evidence that anybody ever lived in that place again. Hmm. On my website, if you've looked at it, Al, there are uh, photos of that estate inside as well, even though, even though it was locked. Uh, I learned how to pick locks, and so I let myself in, <laughs> took a lot of photos, never touched anything. A historian never, never messes with stuff. Yeah, sure. but I took a lot of photos, which you see on the website, okay. and it's never been lived in since then. And we hear it's for sale. Every year we hear the same thing. It's for sale for 40 million U.S. dollars. Uh, which is a huge piece of property. And in the book, Hitler in Argentina, Don Angel goes into a description of how he flew down to what he said, Antarctica, mm -hmm. to meet Hitler. But the way he described it in the book, it's exactly the layout of the estate where I was. Hmm. So in the spook world, they call that disinformation yeah. to get you going yeah. in the wrong direction. Exactly. So, uh, but, uh, uh, so I guess Hitler was several places down there, and uh, I'll ask you about that. But if we, yeah. if we backtrack to, to the bunker again, we, we have this scenario now that <clears throat> Bormann got, uh, according to your research, already back in 43, 44, they, uh, Dönitz, Bormann, everybody was checking out a uh, possible uh, flight route and uh, a place in exile, and Obviously, they must not have mentioned this to Hitler because for Hitler, he was such a all or nothing, right? So if they confronted him with this, he would have dismissed it probably. No, no, are you crazy? You're, you're traitors, right? <laughs> so they must have prepared this without his knowledge. And then, like you said, when the going really went tough, that's when they, okay, call up on his doctor, put some dope in him. Let's get out of here. Is that the scenario? That that's a very strong uh, probability. Mm. Uh, they knew it was. They knew the fat was in the fire. The the end of 1943, early 44. It was obvious. I was a kid during the war years, and I I remember that exactly. At that point, we knew the war was going to go the way it did, mm. and uh, you know they they had all this brave bravado rhetoric. We're going to fight to the last man when they read it really meant we're going to fight to the last sergeant while we get out of town. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not everybody was going to run, but a great number. Uh, I look at Heinrich Mueller, Gestapo Mueller. Mm. He wound up in the United States. General Kamler, he came to the United States. Galen, Reinhard Galen, who had the whole spy network against the Soviets, 
he went to work for the Americans. Yeah. Back against the Soviets. Yeah, yeah. Galen is is uh, he he was uh, restored. But when it comes to Mueller and uh, Kumler, you say they went to the states. That's interesting. Uh, that's that's another whole. That's another whole side road here you don't even want to get into. But yeah, we... Yeah. Maybe in part two, because we have actually uh, been tracking these guys uh, already in other shows. So that's very interesting. But if we if we look at um, where we were now, I'm thinking also that uh, this uh, escape plan that they had, like you said, some people uh, were left behind. But I've always wondered, uh, was it that... Because there was so much backstabbing and so much, should we say, battles behind the scenes among the Nazis, factions, I guess. So, because I can't see that Goering or Goebbels or Himmler volunteered to take the fall, right? So I'm wondering why why did some get the why did some be left behind? Because someone needed to be. You know, they needed someone at Nuremberg. They couldn't let everybody go. So, so what's your theory about this? Or if indeed, if you even know some facts about this, why did some get away and others didn't? Uh, I this part I can only I can only guess at. Some of them, like Dernitz, I don't think he wanted to get away. His his daughter was a member of Shark Hunters until she died. Uh, he was a very patriotic guy. I don't think he wanted to get away. He was a soldier. So yeah, he was a soldier. That's correct. Mm. Uh, the other ones, like like Borman and uh, those guys, they figured, uh-uh, I'm not going to die. Mengele, they wanted to get out of town while they could, and they did. When when I was in Argentina last year, in Buenos Aires, we went to one of the three houses that Mengele owned in Buenos Aires, wow. a very, very nice house. Mm. Uh, and the backyard of his house, or back garden, I think you guys call it up there, mm-hmm. The back garden of his house was against the back garden of Perón's presidential palace. <laughs> not, not government built, but his mansion. Yeah. <laughs> Perón was so pro-Nazi. He was so strong for them. The Germans set up the Alpine school, the skiing school for the Argentine army before the war. Mm. And we've got photos of uh, a young Captain Perón learning to ski. Uh, and we've got photos of, of good-looking German troops with German equipment and everything, except they weren't German, and it wasn't in Germany, it was in Argentina. This was the Argentine army. Even today, the army of Chile wears the same kind of dress uniforms as, as the SS. Huh. Wow. So they were very strong down there. We, mm. You know, hardly a day goes by that I don't find more information on how strongly entrenched Germany was mm. in South America. Yeah. And that and this started actually back in the late 19th century. Ow. People don't know it, but it goes far back. Yeah. I mean, with German emigration to South America and, and especially these areas there. Germany and Italy had had very strong presence in South America. So uh, the, the foundation was laid. That's, that's put in my book, uh, Hitler and the Secret Alliance. It explains how all that was done. Okay. Now, you have to remember, Juan Perón, in 1945, was a colonel without a lot of money and no property. And two years later, uh, one year later, he was president of Argentina. He was a general, and he had tons of money. He and Bormann went together on, on banking, etc. And there was a guy named Ludwig Freude, who was a director of the Banco Alemán Transatlantico, the, the German Transatlantic Bank. 
he was also instrumental in funneling hundreds of millions of, of dollars into Argentina. Some went to Peron, mm. some to help the German refugees that came in, the guys who didn't want to wind up in the dock at Nuremberg. Uh, so the, the skids were, were, were there and, and it was all it was all laid out. So Peron got the power due to his German backers. Yeah, and with the money, with the money. Mm. Bormann not only brought a ton of money with him, he also had the codes to the secret bank accounts. Mm, mm, mm. And the interesting thing, Al, in the Northern Hemisphere, Europe, North America, when I tell somebody that I know Hitler escaped to South America, they look at me like I'm crazy because, no, they know he was he killed himself in the bunker. Yet in South America, you tell somebody that Hitler escaped to Argentina, they look at you like they're, you're crazy because they know it. Yeah. We went to the uh, Plaza Hotel in Buenos Aires, which back in the 30s and 40s and 50s was the most upscale hotel in all of South America. It was right across the, 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 the boulevard from this beautiful park. And so I went to the, the manager, uh, Senora Rodriguez. I introduced myself, explained what I was looking for. And I said, my research indicates that Martin Borman lived in this hotel for two years after the war ended. She never batted an eye. She said, yes, in room 740, the presidential suite. Wow. I said, what, you knew this? She says, yeah, we all know it. Okay. I said, my research also says that he lived there with, with two young women. <laughs> <laughs> and she, she, she got a little embarrassed and she says, well, I, I don't know anything about that. So. so he left his family behind, but uh, yeah, he was a. I can see he he lived like a playboy there. But what about Himmler and and all these people? Why wouldn't they? Well, it's the thing that they were so fanatical, so idealistical, like Hitler, that they didn't flee before it was too late. Obviously, they tried, but then it was too late. Well, yeah, Himmler got caught by the British, and uh, either well, they say he committed suicide, but my guess is. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, they whacked him, yeah. and they they buried his body in a park in, what is it, Lüneburger, mm. I think. Yeah, but what about Goebbels? I think he maybe took suicide. What do you think? Or was he too killed? There, I am not an expert on that. We're getting some very interesting information about Goebbels and the Goebbels children, but that's somebody else's area of expertise, and and I'm not in. We were in, we were in uh, you know, we take shark hunter tours over there every year. Mm. And we went to the Berlin area, and we were actually in his estate. And he put a, um, he built, or he bought, a very nice estate, uh, House Bogensee, and a beautiful place. And he had one whole wing that was nothing but bedrooms for guests. And since he was in charge of the film industry, any uh, beautiful young movie starlet who wanted to get going in, in the movies had to spend a couple nights in one of the special bedrooms with Goebbels. <laughs> right, uh, right. I, I tried to get a job like that. Never could find <laughs> But uh, it's so fascinating because uh, if you look at people who were trialed then, like Goering, and if Goering hated Bormann, why wouldn't he bargain at Nuremberg and say, hey, Bormann got away with millions, billions. So 
you know, I'll tell you the facts and you let me off uh, easy. Why didn't anything like that happen? Or maybe they tried, but the the British weren't interested. What, what do you think? Uh, I, that I don't know. I don't know anything about that. Uh, I My personal opinion is <clears throat> those guys were doomed before they ever sat down in their chairs. Right. There was not a trial. There was a tribunal. Yeah. And it has happened throughout history, Al. The winners always execute the losers, and uh, whether you like it or not, whether it's right or wrong, it has happened throughout history. And, yeah. uh, so uh, maybe they wanted to play a deal. They they wanted to hang Gross Admiral Carl Dönitz too, mm. until the American Admiral Nimitz sent a uh, notice to the board and said, "Hey." He, he conducted submarine warfare the exact same way that the Americans did. He did nothing wrong. Mm. I remember when I was a kid, we were told they machine gun people in the water for sport and, and all that. And it turns out that was absolutely not true. War propaganda. Exactly. Mm. Because, Al, if if you're a, a, a company commander and you got your men ready to go into battle and you tell them, you see the guys on the other side of the battlefield in the other uniform, they're just like you. They love their country like you love your country. They got a wife and children at home that they want to get home to. They go to the same church you go to. Now go and kill them. Mm. You know, people are going to say, wait, let's think about this. Yeah, obviously. But, but you know, uh, one thing is the soldiers who did their duties. But we're talking party members. And in the Nuremberg trial... Some party members were taken, but even if Goering would spill the beans, I don't think he had a chance because the myth about Hitler's suicide was a fabrication on behalf of the British intelligence, which tells me that they didn't want the truth to come out. Like you said, the American intelligence knew about it, so he probably they couldn't bargain because they wanted people to believe Hitler were dead. They wanted yes. people to think everything was over, right? Yeah, and we can step it, uh, take it a step farther than that. Uh, we all know what happened to uh, uh, poor old Rudolf Hess. Yeah, he was in Spandau prison, the only guy there. Uh, the Russians kept saying no, don't let him out. Finally, the Russians said, okay, let him go. And to a to an uninformed idiot like me, that would mean you go turn the key, tell him there's the door, get the hell out of here. No, you know the Brits were in charge at that particular time, and uh, he suddenly. He was so crippled with arthritis, he couldn't raise his hands up over his belt, and he suddenly reached over his head to tie a lamp cord around a beam, and he hanged himself. We know that's all. You know, we, we list. Yeah, we, we named the three SAS guys who executed him. One of our members oh. was a very famous um, a historian by the name of Charles Hyam. He was a transplanted Brit who lived in Los Angeles. Mm. And he was one of our members, and we were in contact quite a bit. He was all excited because he was doing a book on the true story of the mission of Rudolf Hess. Mm. He uh, he was supposed to parachute down because uh, Hitler had made at least 20 peace proposals to Churchill mm -hmm. and Churchill had just thrown him out. So Hitler figured that if he could get to the king, maybe they could stop the war because Hitler never wanted war with England in the first place. Mm. So. Hess was on his way to parachute out over the estate of the Duke of something or another. Yeah, in Scotland, uh, yeah. 
Right. And, uh, of course, the Churchill people had gotten wind of this, and they were waiting for him, and they grabbed him, and they put him into seclusion immediately. Well, Charles Hyam had gotten documents and interviewed people, and he was he had the book all finished, uh, the manuscript. Mm. And I talked to him on the phone, and uh, he told me that he had the manuscript all done. He had absolute hard proof that could not be refuted that uh, Hess was not a madman. He was on this mission. The Churchill people grabbed him to prevent the peace proposal from getting to the king, and he was going to send it off. This was on a weekend. Mm. He was going to send it off to the publisher on Monday. Damn if he didn't wake up dead on Sunday. Mm. And all his documentation disappeared. Funny how those things happen. Yeah. But what is your suggestion then for the Hess mystery? Why why kill him after all these years? People didn't give a damn anymore back then. It's so long since the war. So why, why couldn't they just let him go? What did he know that was so dangerous that they had to take him out? Probably because he knew he was on a peace mission to bring a peace proposal to the King of England and was deliberately stifled so that Churchill could keep the war going. That's it? I mean, uh, <laughs> people... Uh, okay, well, it was a hypothesis for a very long time, so... I really don't know what he knew, because he's dead. He yeah. can't tell anything. Yeah, that's also, right. And we know it was a murder. Yeah. So th that's been forensic experts even say that now, so... Oh, yeah. Well, you've got to be dumber than a box of rocks not to realize <laughs> that he was uh, killed. But is it, isn't it interesting that the same people who planted the myth about Hitler's suicide were the same people who took out Hess. Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, maybe they all had something in common. The bottom line, in my opinion, Al, the bottom line why this myth has to keep going is because there are cash registers ringing, there's money coming in, and if the Hitler suicide would become generally debunked, and overturned, it might interrupt somebody's uh, revenue flow. Mm. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, I've been attacked by the Southern Poverty Law Center, the SPLC, or as we call them, the Spit Lickers. Uh, they have come out on their website or whatever and said that I'm a neo-Nazi, and I'm not a Nazi, neo or otherwise, I'm a Republican. Uh, belong to the Republican Executive Committee, which is probably not much better in their view. And they said, Shark Hunters is a general hate group. We're not a hate group. We're not Nazis. Ronald Reagan was a member. The four Medal of Honor winning American submarine were members. Medal of Honor fighter pilots were members. Okay, I was thinking about talking about shark hunters in part two, but we can take it now. What? So it's an interest group for people who have, uh, who's interested in, especially you, but, but war history. Yeah. And also you have a lot of veterans. But the fascinating thing is that you actually have members from all the see, conflicting parties back from the war. You have British, American and Germans member. Isn't that right? Yeah. Oh, we've got members in 77 countries mm. and uh, and people, you know, some years ago when Admiral Kelso was the chief of naval operations here in the U.S., head of the U.S. Navy, <clears throat> I uh, I had a group going over to Russia and the five-star fleet admiral Vladimir Chernevin was also a member of Shark Hunters. I met him. He was a friend. He was on my board. And so I was talking to 
Admiral Kelso, and I said, why don't you come with us? I can introduce you to your counterpart, Admiral Chernyevin. <laughs> he says, that would be nice. I could, Me and Vladimir could get together for a round of golf again. I haven't seen him in ages, oh, you know. Right. So these guys, you know, they were friends, they were buddies, but if they were told go kill yeah, the other yeah. one's Navy, what they would do. Yeah, because these are soldiers, right? These aren't ideologists. That's exactly right. They're not politicians. And good soldiers know that other, you know, the, the so-called enemy, that it's the same there. Exactly. They're doing their duty and, yeah, they're following orders. Our motto, which was given to us by uh, the fellow who turned out to be my best friend in Germany, uh, Hans-Georg Hesse. The kid was 21 years old, and they put him in command of a combat submarine. Uh, he had five war patrols when most boats weren't coming back from their first. He got the Knight's Cross, became a doctor of law, and he gave us our motto, yesterday's enemies are today's friends. Yeah. And we found out from others, you know, and they've told us, we found out we weren't different at all. We just wore different uniforms. Mm. And I had a situation in 1991. I was invited to the Soviet Union by Fleet Admiral Chernyevin. And I was at a round table of Russian admirals. They love round tables over there. And there were probably 20 or so admirals. And each one would ask me a question about submarine history. And all this time, the admiral straight across from me, just staring into my <laughs> eyes with steely blue eyes. And when it got to his turn, he did not ask me uh, a submarine history question. He asked me, why are you here? Right. H hang I, on. Was this before or after the, the fall? Just before. Just before. Okay. Mm -hmm. A couple of weeks before the end of the Soviet Union. Okay. So I pointed at him and I said, I was told you're my enemy. He got very stiff, mm. and I said, but you were told that I was the enemy. Uh, he, he agreed, and I said, I don't see an enemy. I see a man like myself who wants his children to grow up in peace without a war going on. Mm. And he said, yes, we agree. I said, okay, let's drink with Pepsi, a great American invention. He <laughs> says, no, we drink with vodka, a great <laughs> Russian invention. <clears throat> I said, okay. We drink with vodka. We agree there. And like somebody threw a switch, Al, they were all out of their chairs smiling and come over patting me on the back. They were pulling the medals off their uniforms, pinning them on my jacket. <laughs> and we found out we weren't different at all. Yeah. And uh, wow. do, you, do, do you understand no, Russian? No, no, unfortunately not. <laughs> I, I said, I am now an honorary Russian submarine officer. Right, right. Well, honorary Russian submarine officer. It's so great that Russian soldiers, British, German, everybody, because like you say, people are people. And it's not the soldiers who order these wars, is it? Right. It's not the soldiers who point out the enemies. Yeah. Now, I think most listeners also understand these things. What we are getting to the bottom of today is the, is the ideologists, is the, should we say, paper shufflers, the, the people in the <laughs> offices, right, who, who, who do us these things. Yes, as one of our members calls them, uh, uh, chair farters. Right, yeah. Or as we also know a word for it uh, from america chicken hawks <laughs> okay. yeah 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 <laughs> but okay let's let's continue with hitler's flight i want your take on i mean after all u-boats are one of the main topics of the shark hunters sure. and i suspect that in your scenario 
U-boats have an important role here when it comes to Hitler's escape. So what is your take on how he and Bormann got got physically from Germany to to uh, Argentina? And what evidence or circumstantial evidence do we have for... Because there's so many suggestions of how they got out. You're probably aware. <laughs> different people have different scenarios. So I want to know your take on it. Yeah, it depends on what. Yeah, it depends on what those people have been smoking or drinking. <laughs> yeah. So, so what have you found? We we know what happened to him. Okay, let's hear. Okay, Hitler was uh, taken out of Berlin to an airfield. Uh, I think uh, my pronunciation probably wrong. Schweidnitz or something like that, where some of the best Waffen SS men were surrounding the air base to keep the Russians out. They had several uh, JU-200s, you know, the four-engine transport plane, and they had a couple of Focke-Wulf 290s, four-engine, and they also had the one operating Focke-Wulf FW-390, which had incredible range. And it had been painted light blue, the Swedish Air Force markings, and he and Ava Brown were flown out of this Schweidnitz place to Norway and from then down to Uruguay. We know where they went. Hang on. So so from Germany, they got away to Norway in a plane? Yes. That, that pretended to be Swedish? Yes. Wow. Forget the story that somebody else is telling about how they got away on a submarine. Adolf Hitler got seasick looking at a bowl of soup that wasn't sitting still. <laughs> okay. And and to think he was going to be cooped up in a steel tube for three or four or five weeks, it it just didn't work that way. Yeah. We we. But how did he get from Berlin then to to this place? Was it plane all the way? Schweidnitz. Uh, most likely, yes. We're not absolutely certain, but in the closing moments of the war, a Blumenvoss BV-138 flying boat landed on the lake outside Berlin, and uh, they took passengers aboard and flew out. We don't know. That's the one place we're not sure, from Berlin to Schweidnitz. Okay. But from there, we know we also have charts where... This airfield was being defended by the Waffen-SS, mm. and we also have charts of a 15-kilometer-long road in a little town in Uruguay, a straight road, so that this plane could land on it, and they put up a small RDF site in a small woods at the end of the road, you know, RDF radio direction finder, so that the plane could find its way down there. Mm. It landed, and... Uh, the plane was immediately disassembled and the parts all thrown away. Except we think we know where there are some parts, and I'm going down there in uh, February to look. Wow. But uh, you said Norway. I'm yeah. curious. Where in Norway did they go? Do you know? Uh, I've got it in my notes, but I don't remember off the top of my head. Christians. Remember, Norway was the only part of the Reich that was still in full military operation right. up until the time of the surrender. The submarines were, were untouched. Mm. I just want to fill in a blank here because, uh, you know, I'm from Norway and I can tell you the war history because uh, what people need to know is that they were ordered, there was many Germans in Norway with huge battalions and they were ordered back at the end to help uh, fight. But 
the saboteurs, that is Norwegian freedom fighters, they they ruined the, the railway, they ruined the, the boats. So basically, many German soldiers were stuck in Norway, actually, right. <laughs> who could have been, who could have fought, right. who could probably have influenced a little. But uh, there they were, uh, sitting on their hands back in Norway. So it was a clever choice to go there first if they needed... But it's so risky too because I mean they had to pass by, you know the the Allied zones, the British uh, uh, U-boats, bo- uh, bomber boats, uh, all these planes. Uh, he could have been shot down at any point, I think, in that route. Why would they shoot down a Swedish airplane? Ah, good point, good point. But it wasn't that simple. You just had to <laughs> go into a Swede. Didn't they have to identify themselves if they were confronted with a? a uh, battleship or another plane? Well, there was a, uh, a major operation going on that all from about the middle of April called Operation Mercator. And when one of my guys first told me about this, I thought he was nuts. Uh, from about the middle of April on, two or three dozen Type 9 U-boats were sent to operate off the American East Coast. Almost 100 Type 7 boats were sent to operate right around England and some up into the uh, North Sea Mm. and nothing in the middle of the Atlantic. This was meant to pull all the anti-submarine assets, ships and planes into those areas. And I'm I'm just thinking Germany didn't have that many submarines left. And then I got the list of all these submarines. They were indeed part of this Operation Mercator, and some of the skippers were members of Shark Hunters. So there were about 10 skippers in there. Mm. And I asked those who were still living, and yeah, that's what they were doing. So there was this huge, big, wide swath down the middle of the Atlantic, mm. and uh, that was wide open, and also not much activity over the Scandinavian countries because they were all accumulating around England yeah. and off the American East Coast. Yeah. yeah, at that point, Norway wasn't central to the war. But uh, uh, one thing is to lure away with a decoy. That's very clever. But uh, don't you think that also that there were some among the Allied who blessed Hitler's escape? Or, or do you think that none of them really wanted him to escape? Because I'm thinking maybe the Dulls, Alan Dulls and these people were bought off by, by Bormann. <laughs> what do you think about that? Oh, I can do more than think about it, Al. Oh, I can tell come on. a pretty strong theory. Yeah. When when I was in the Air Force, uh, I was a special weapons guy. For six months, from January until June of 1958, ye gods, that was a long time ago, I was in very heavy schooling for special weapons, nuclear weapons, mm. hydrogen bombs, and... Part of the training, the first couple of weeks, we saw movies about the American nuclear project. And we were having troubles. The U.S. was running short on fissionable uranium. Uh, we couldn't get the bomb to work right because uh, the, the nuclear center, it's, it's a ball of uranium about the size of a grapefruit, perfectly round, surrounded by a giant ball of explosive, 64 shaped charges that had to detonate at the exact same microsecond to crush the ball of uranium to supercritical mass for it to explode. 
and we didn't have the triggers. We were running low on uranium. And according to a book, uh, Japan's Secret War by a guy named Bob Wilcox, who was a member of Shark Hunters, Japan test fired their first weapon one week before the U.S. test fired our first weapon. So it was looking pretty grim. And then Germany surrendered. And all of a sudden, our scientists got real smart. And we had lots of uranium. And one of the one of the primary factions here was a guy named Dr. Heinz Schlicker, mm-hmm. who was on a German submarine that was on its way to Japan when the war ended. It was in the North Atlantic. So they surrendered to the U.S. Schlicker was on board. There were other scientists on board. There was 560 kilos of uranium on board. There was uh, at least one ME-262 jet fighter, all in crates, with the uh, documentation to show the Japanese how to build these things. And uh, Luftwaffe General going to set up a a base in Tokyo again, take over that uh, function, and and two Japanese scientists. Mm. And so the war, well, Germany surrendered, so the, the two Japanese on board, committed suicide, and then the submarine surrendered in the United States. Dr. Schlicker was the guy who either invented or perfected the infrared trigger for the atomic weapons. Exactly, yes. And yes. He, he was a member of Shark Hunters. Really? Wow. Yeah. And he lived in Milwaukee, for God's sake. So he was, he was a very valuable man. For the, for the American uh, military. Yeah. So it's our theory, and I think it's a pretty damn good theory, you guys leave Hitler alone, don't go after him, and we'll give you all this stuff. And, mm. and the people, too, because yeah. uh, we have documentation that Kamler brought over enough uh, weapons-grade uranium for seven more weapons. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, people ask me, well, why didn't they go after Hitler? since we knew where he was. And I asked them, well, who's they? And they look a little stunned. And Well, uh, Israel. Why didn't Israel go after him? Well, in 1945, Israel didn't exist. Exactly. I was going to ask you about Mossad a little later. But uh, what you say here, this scenario, which uh, is known to us, is so plausible. But what about, what if Bowman just said, hey, we have a plane, We're an important plane for us. Here, here's what you get if you leave that plane alone. He didn't have to tell them that Hitler was on board, but you think they really knew? Well, we don't have any indication yes or no on that one. Mm. We just know that once he got down there, uh, we were told hands off. Also, I might point out, uh, in this little area called Bariloche, there is a a very, very expensive hotel built in 1938, Mm -hmm. and it's spelled L-L-A-O, L-L-A-O, and it's pronounced down there as Shao Shao. I don't know how you get Shao Shao out of that. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's the Argentine Spanish. Okay. Uh, there's a picture hanging in the library of Dwight Eisenhower in that hotel in 1960. What the hell was the president of the United States doing in this mm, remote little nowhere yeah. in 1960? Yeah, yeah. I know where you're going with this. Okay. Well, all I'm saying is uh, he was... 20 kilometers away from the estate where Hitler was living. 
You. I'll ask you about this uh, in part two too, okay. because this is such an important part of the story. But uh, I want us to go back to, because I'm still at the escape uh, time period here. What about Kamler and uh, Gestapo Müller? Why did they go to America and uh, not Argentina? Do you think uh, that I don't know why they didn't? Maybe they couldn't get away or whatever. Well, why do you think they went to America at all and not to Argentina? Well, if they couldn't, if they couldn't get out of Europe, they were they were they were taken up in Operation Paperclip. Now, with uh, I'm, I'm not that up on Mueller. Okay. But one of our members found his grave in California. Wow. Uh, but Kamler. He knew everything. He was in. He was the third most powerful man in the Reich. Exactly. He was in charge of all the spook stuff, yeah. all the secret work. Yeah. And uh, according to one scenario, he walked into the woods. You know, he had his headquarters at the Skoda Works in Prague, mm. and he allegedly walked into the woods and shot himself dead, so that the Americans couldn't get him. Yeah, but uh, he's been reported dead ten times, so I don't buy buy that story. Well, and the second scenario is he marched in with his SS guards, and they shot him. Yeah, right. One guard said uh, that he shot Kamler in the back. The other guard said, no, Kamler shot himself in the head. Well, that's another one of those things where you can't make that kind of a mistake. Mm. Now, one of our members, a guy named Clark McClellan, who uh, was an engineer with NASA for 35 years, and he knew Dr. Davis, who was head of the German rocket yeah. systems. Yeah. He was the first head of NASA, mm. and Dr. Debus had him into the office, and he introduced him to Kamler in the in Dr. Debus' office, and he also introduced him to a man named uh, Dr. Grün. Dr. Hang on, Kurt Debus and Hans Kamler—they knew each other very well from back in the secret weapons uh, research yeah. days. It certainly did. <laughs> so, so they were introduced to each other, and they kept a straight face. <laughs> well, no, Debus introduced Kamler to uh, Clark. Allen. Oh, now I understand. Okay, okay, yeah. sorry. Yeah, mm, continue. And, and also, the other guy was uh, Doctor Green or Mister Green, yeah. which was the code name for Mueller. Now, whether that was Mueller or not, uh -huh. pretty well I think it was. Uh, right. So you know that there are so many false stories. You know, Hitler committed suicide in the bunker. Kamler shot himself in the head. That's a bunch of baloney. Mm. Uh, and and we're we're proving absolutely Hitler did not commit suicide in the bunker. This is fact. Anybody who now I can't say anybody who doesn't believe it is a fool because that's not right. Anybody who has access to the information we have and still doesn't yeah. believe it, those are the dummies because I mean it's right there in front of your face. Precisely. Black is black, white is white, the sky is blue, and if you don't believe that, okay. <laughs> but Kamler, because uh, there is these uh, interesting, you know, after the Soviet fell, and especially I think Igor Vitkovsky is one of those who did the most research on the so-called Nazi bell, oh, the Glocke, under uh, Kamler. What's your take on that story? Wachowski, in my opinion, is one of the one of the best researchers in the whole world on the Glocke. I, I don't think there's anybody better. Mm. Uh, he's another boots on the ground guy. He doesn't just sit around and and read out of the people's work. He was down in Bariloche at least once. Wow! And he was also in that arrangement where they had the 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 bell. I think they called it the mouse trap or whatever. Mm. He was there. So in my opinion, uh, Witkowski is the number one researcher in the world on Diglacher. Mm. So <laughs> to find out 
But do you think the Glock went to the Americans, or do you think they managed to get it safely down to one of their colonials in in South America? Yeah. Well, there's a there's also another question: Was there only one oh, Glock? Good point. Good point. Uh, according to one of our sources, yes, it went down there, and it was on that island Hoimel where the German nuclear research facility was. Excuse me, is this the Brazilian islands where they put up the radio masts and all that? No, 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 no. That was the island Trindade on the, out in the ocean. Mm. This is the island Hoimel, which is in the lake, mm. not well happy, down by Berilochi. Oh, okay. German scientists opened a nuclear research laboratory there in 1947, two years after the war ended. <laughs> yeah, nuclear. Right. And they allegedly had uh, achieved the first cold fusion, but that's another whole story. Yeah, yeah, I, I know that story. Uh, yeah, and they had this, um, actually a colleague of uh, Debus, what was his name again? Uh, Richter, Ronald Richter. That is correct, absolutely mm. correct, Ronald Richter. I was in the ruins of his house. Wow. The ruins of that uh, whole laboratory. Still there. All the buildings, everything is there except everything that was wood is gone. Either it was taken by the villagers to put in their fireplace or it just rotted away. I don't know, but uh, <clears throat> it's there. Mm. And uh, it's pretty much off limits except uh, <laughs> we go there and it's it's uh, under the control of the uh, their version of the, uh, the Coast Guard, which is the Prefectura. Mm. And uh, I was a a flotilla commander with the U.S. Coast Guard Auxiliary. And so we go there, and I just show them my ID that I was an officer in the U.S. Coast Guard Auxiliary, and, oh, fine, take over the island. Mm. Photos all over the website uh, on that also. And then in 1951, 52 or 53, something like that, they just closed up and left. Mm. Now, Perron, again, he was a sharp cookie, right across the narrow stretch of water, which was only a few hundred meters wide to the shore, he had his uh, mountain troop school built so he could protect the facility on the island or so he could keep an eye on it or both. Mm. Perron was not a dummy. Hmm. Interesting. So yeah, It's all interwoven, Al. Everything is interwoven. Yeah, yeah it is indeed. Uh, the Hitler suicide myth has been yeah. based on, you know, the, like you said, uh, conflicting reports from as, as uh, actually from people uh, who were so close to his inner circle that, right. <laughs> you know, that every reason in the world to lie, to cover. Exactly. Uh, but also it's been resting upon uh, these uh, so-called uh, remnants like the skull and all that. Oh, yeah. And then in 2009, I think it was History Channel who broke the story that because they finally got to the researcher, he actually smuggled out of... Soviet, excuse me, Russia, a, a fragment of the skull, and they yeah. could take these uh, final DNA tests, and lo and behold, it belongs to a woman, yeah. and even a woman who was too young to be Eva Brown. <laughs> Absolutely. 
so from then on, it was no longer, uh, yeah. you know, Bigfoot uh, kind of attitude to believe that <laughs> Hitler survived. And but at that point, you obviously had already, already from the 80s, you were talking about this, right? So did you yeah. feel vindicated somehow, or well, yeah, you know, a little, bit, a little bit vindicated, and also, <laughs> also a little bit just off that they wouldn't uh, accept my research that they had to find out for themselves that they were wrong. And as you say, it was a young woman. And no matter what you think about Adolf Hitler, he was not a (laughs) cross-dresser. That was not his head. And as as uh, an honorary Russian uh, submarine officer, and also because my friend there was chief of intelligence for the Soviet Navy, I got into the Red Army Museum, and I asked, where is the body? What body? Hitler's body. They never had a body that they put into the uh, archives. So, Do you know why they at all claimed that? Because Stalin certainly didn't believe the suicide myth. So why did his successors and the KGB and all that, why, why were they so fervently upholding the myth just like the British? Do you have any uh, thoughts about that or knowledge about that? No, that, that's a good question. I don't know. But uh, Stalin and Hitler... Had, had a serious hatred of one another. Oh, yeah. If, if Stalin would have had Hitler's body, he would have been using Hitler's skull for an ashtray. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yes, yes. <laughs> but but where, where, was, where was the skull? It didn't exist there. They had a piece of a skull that wasn't, they knew wasn't Hitler's. Yeah. And then we just recently got a photo of the alleged death area uh, in, in the pure bunker and there's a little bit of a smudge <coughs> excuse me it was a black and white photo so it could have been maple syrup i don't know but uh, they said it was blood believe me if you if you shoot yourself in the head mm. you don't have a nice neat little wound like you see on television the skull explodes brains fly every which way blood flies every which way yeah. you shoot anybody in any part of their body it's the same thing blood guts everywhere mm. so to think a man shot himself in the head and left nothing but a little blood smear, mm. that's baloney. Yeah, plus, uh, like uh, Levando said, he said that uh, if you took cyanide, you couldn't you couldn't both shoot yourself and take cyanide because right. cyanide gives you spasms. <laughs> exactly. And, and these people that say that Hitler bit down on a cyanide capsule while he had the gun in his mouth, I don't know how tough you think he is, but how are you going to bite down on a, on a gun barrel? <laughs> yeah. And, and chew on the cyanide. It, it just. And there's one other interesting thing that most people don't know about. Guncha, his his adjutant. Uh, we knew Guncha. He was a big guy. He was almost two meters tall, mm. uh, and in very good physical shape all through his life. And he would never talk about the so-called suicide after he was released from captivity. And. Uh, Friends thought that he just kept his mouth shut because he was concerned that his wife might be targeted. And uh, his wife passed away finally. And he had his 88th birthday, and he was in great physical shape, I'm told, by the friends who were there. Mm -hmm. And maybe certain people thought he was going to start talking because just a couple weeks after his 88th birthday, his housekeeper found him in the sauna at nine o'clock in the morning, he had been there since three o'clock the afternoon before, wow. and it was set at 85 degrees centigrade. Mm. You don't cook meat at that temperature. <laughs> no. 
So was it really just an accident? Mm. Right. Mm. Apple pie heart attack. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I think maybe we should take a break now because I think we've covered the escape part. Okay. And uh, there's uh, so many questions for you as for the exile part. Uh, but before we take that break, yeah, let me ask you about one thing, and that is the new, uh, I mentioned History Channel, and they now uh, have this huge production called Hunting Hitler. Yeah. Now, have they asked you to, to contribute to that show? No, not a damn thing. Hmm. I, even wrote, I even wrote to the president of A&E, who owns the History Channel, and said, hey, you know, can we talk? Yeah. Never got an answer, never got the uh, courtesy of a reply. Hmm. Uh, My guess is uh, it's going to go uh, just a guess about yeah. how horrible Hitler was, how horrible the Germans were, and uh, uh, there's really no proof that he's uh, that he survived the bunker. That's just merely a guess. We will have to see. We will have to see, but I think that they want to control the narrative. Well, without question, Al, without question, they're yeah. controlled then it's not so good for them to have a primary research uh, thrown in their face right. <laughs> because you can't alter the facts then. <laughs> right, because they can have their show, eight eight shows in a series, I believe it is, and still at the end leave you wondering, did he commit suicide or did he get away? Yeah. Because if, if they put me on, the, you know, we have the facts, we have the proof. He did not commit suicide. Hmm. He went down to Argentina. And as of the year 2002, Ava Brown was still alive. We're, we're quite certain of that, wow. which is no big deal. She was born in 1912. That makes her 90 years old. Yeah. No big deal. My, my grandmother was 90. My grandfather's... Oh, no, no, no. My personal mentor, he's German. Uh, he was born in 1920 and he died this year. Yeah. So he actually worked uh, at Goering's office, just as uh, you know, oh. he, w he wasn't a party member or anything, but he was drafted. But yeah. Uh, yeah. So no, no, there's still people around, of course. Yeah. And this was a guy who who was uh, old enough to. He was adult during the war. So yeah. yeah. And women, they live longer than men too. So. Yeah, and we think we're not sure yet. I'm looking for proof when I go down there. We think she was alive in 2012 in a nursing home. But we don't know that for sure. Wow. This is so interesting. We're going to delve more into this in part two. I just want to say regarding the History Channel, if you just send a mail, you have no guarantee they have read it. You're connected. I think you should try to get one of your members to see see if anyone, if and if any of our listeners uh, know anyone who knows anyone, pitch them his book, Hitler in Argentina. And who knows, maybe they want you to contribute. The two books that Harry Cooper has written about this, and correct me if I'm wrong, that is, the first book is called Hitler in Argentina, where you cover the escape and his life there. And the second book is Hitler and the Secret Alliance, where you cover like the post-war Nazi network, so to speak. Is that right? Uh, well, yeah, pretty much. Uh, Hitler and the Secret Alliance also covers pre-World War II, how, how the foundations were laid so that it, uh, you know, they never expected World War II. They never expected that they would need an escape area for somebody named Hitler back mm. in 1915 or 20. Mm. But the foundation was laid heavy, heavy, heavy German influence down there. They owned millions of acres. Mm. Uh, 
and uh, so pre-World War II and then after World War II, yeah. And these books are filled with uh, documentation, pictures, references, uh, facts, interviews, stuff like that. So if people get these books, they will. it's not just a lot of opinions and claims. You actually uh, substantiate everything you write there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the few times that there's a theory, I lay out that this is a theory. But other than that, mm. it's hard fact backed up by documents, backed up by personal interviews, mm. uh, photographs. Yeah, I don't I never say something is fact unless I'm absolutely convinced it is fact. Mm. That's a, that's a very scholarly attitude. Despite you being autodidact, this is the attitude needed here. And I noticed that also in, in my conversation with you thus far that you are very good at pointing out when you're when you don't know something and you speculate and when it's a fact. Yeah. And yeah. So this is this is what we need, especially in these areas of uh, research where which is so sensitive we, we need sober people who knows the difference so these two books they can be bought on amazon and all the usual places right that's correct it, uh, and hitler in argentina is also available in spanish uh through amazon it's also available in french i don't, I don't know who the i don't know how that's published we're also having it right now it's being translated into german Italian and very shortly into Portuguese. Mm, mm. So uh, I think uh, you probably have a certain readership in Argentina than if it's in Spanish. And I, I'm guessing the Brazilians will uh, start to read it soon. <laughs> there was a heavy, heavy, heavy German spook presence in in Brazil during the war. Yeah, and we've been to more of that in your in your next yeah. period. Yeah, let's do that. I know about that too. Excellent. So people. Stay tuned, don't go away, we're soon back. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks.